All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Making the Argument. Today we're going to be discussing whether or not Joe Biden actually wants a border crisis. I know that seems kind of like a ridiculous question, but when you look at what's going down at the border, it's hard to avoid that it's not like we don't have resources to actually deal with this. And so you have to wonder at some point if something is allowed to continue in the method that it is. Is it because somebody actually benefits from it? Plus, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to go over the best and the worst of arguments with respect to border security and immigration policy from both the left and the right. We're going to do our very level best to give the best argument we can from the left-wing perspective as well as from the right-wing perspective and also explore why we keep talking around each other on some of these issues. And that's going to get to the bottom of the initial question, which is, is this all happening because there are certain people that want it to happen? All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. If you haven't already, head down to the link in the description of this podcast and join our community chat. Maybe there's an argument that we forgot to mention that you would like to add to the discussion. We look forward to meeting you there, and thank you very much for joining us. All right. Well, as always, I am Nick Freitas, your host, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. I have my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, with us. Hello, everyone. And, of course, our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. Hey. And then, of course, there is our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. That's correct, Nicholas. Get into it. All right. So first things first, let's go ahead and do it. What does it mean to have a, a border crisis, right? Like, and and what, is, what is all this talk specifically about Title 42? So for anybody that's wondering, we got, uh, we got the wiki page up here for Title 42 expulsion. And basically, here's what it comes down to. And I'm going I'm to read some of this off. Title 42 expulsions were removals by the U.S. government of people who had recently been in a country where a communicable disease was present. The extent of authority for contagion-related expulsions is set out by law in 42 U.S. Code Section 265 during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Trump administration used this provision, Section 265, to generally block land entry for many migrants. The practice has been continued by the Biden administration with expansion. Title 42 of the United States Code includes numerous sections dealing with public health, social welfare, civil rights, but in the context of immigration, the phrase Title 42 came to be used to refer specifically to expulsions under Section 265. So essentially, this was a, a COVID-era measure that was taken in order to prevent people from coming into the U.S. border, because here's how the process currently works. You come to the U.S. border and you want to immigrate. You know, they're, they're not just going to let you cross the border, right? But if you say, I'm seeking asylum, you cross over the border and you say, I'm seeking asylum. Well, now we have to have an investigation to determine whether or not you are eligible for asylum because you can't just say it because you want it. There's got to be some sort of compelling reason and we can get into the code section if anyone's interested in what an asylum seeker actually is. So here's how the process would typically work. You'd come over to the United States illegally. We'd get you. You'd say, hey, I'm seeking asylum. 
we temporarily detain you. Then you'd have an initial hearing and we'd say, okay, we're going to get to the bottom of whether or not you're seeking asylum. So here's your court date two years from now. <laughs> and off you go right into the United States. That's what it was. So when the people talked about catch and release and, and the left got all upset about it, I mean, that's, that's the process. That is the process for the vast majority of people with the way that we've run stuff at the border. Well, with Title 42, it was, okay, you're seeking asylum. That's great. We're going to investigate this. And while we do, you're going back over the border. You're not going to be in the United States just released on your own, you know, <laughs> your own your own willingness to come back to your to your assigned court date. So if you when we, we talk about this, it's not that everybody that crosses the border just doesn't get caught. The Border Patrol with the limited resources they have, actually catches a lot of people. And I know this for a fact because I was actually on the border shooting a documentary with a group called Moms for America. And we had mothers that lived on the border. And, and by the way, all of them were Hispanic. And they were talking about the crisis that they were undergoing at the border. And they took us to an elementary school that was, I kid you not, elementary school, Levy, Rio Grande. For those of you keeping, those of you not up to speed on your geography, the Rio Grande is the border between Texas and Mexico. So elementary school, levee, river, you know, and floodplain. And as we're sitting there filming the documentary and this mother who's Hispanic, who lives on the border, who's a teacher is explaining the problems with how a lot of times people will cross the border and then they will actually cross the border and try to get in the line with all the cars arriving to pick up the kids after school. And that's where they'll come and get their ride because there's a ton, a ton of cars moving through. As she's explaining this to us, two people come up, cross the levee, come over, and Border Patrol pulls up and arrests them. Like as she's, I mean, you, we, you couldn't have timed it any better. So... Title 42 was a provision that Trump used because of COVID in order to say, hey, look, we're not just going to catch and release. You got to go back on the other side of the border and then we'll, we'll look at your asylum claims. And if you meet the definition of asylum, that's one thing. If you don't, hey, but not, none of this catch and release stuff anymore. So the Biden administration kept this in place to some degree. Um, but now everything's, you know, now, now the whole process is, is getting rid of for title 42 completely. And so people are just flooding the border. And if anybody thinks that, well, it's not like the migrants who are coming over the border actually know that title 42 is going away. They actually had a, a, a Spanish news channel down there on the border interviewing people and like, are, are you aware of title 42? Yes. But, okay. Is, is that why you're at the border now? Yes. <laughs> it's like they, they're aware it's again, they, sometimes they treat people as if they're, they're morons. And they're not. They understand U.S. policy. They understand that the things the president says matters. So to that point, let's look at our first chart. All right. So this chart actually comes from an article on the BBC, but it's from a U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, Agency, and it's dated. It, the data is for uh, up to May 2022. And what you see is U.S.-Mexico border has seen high levels of migrants in the past year. So again, this is a little, little bit dated, but not, not too much. And what you're, what you're seeing is, is that you had kind of a steady stream and all of a sudden you had a, you had a big pop in 2019, right? A big, big, you know, increase. And then it just plummets. And then it just plummets, right? Um, you also see, you know, kind of fewer, you, you don't see as many unaccompanied minors. If you look at this chart, the, the kind of the bright blue is just total encounters and the light blue um, is encounters with unaccompanied minors. And then you, you start to see an increase again, and then Biden takes over and it just launches, just absolutely launches. And then you see it, it's starting to, to pair off a little bit and then it shoots up again. But one of the things that's really fascinating about this is the number of unaccompanied minors that are actually coming over. Now, 
One of the things I want to bring up here, which I, I think is important, is I remember early on when we were all talking about DACA, right? It was the whole idea of unaccompanied minors being allowed to stay in the United States. It was this idea that what sort of a cruel, horrible, inhumane person would not allow an unaccompanied minor to stay. And I remember saying at the time in a debate that we were in, I said, look, the, the problem here, and, and I, I, just so everyone knows, I tend to be a pro-immigration you know, conservative. I think, I think immigration on the whole is a very good thing when it's, when it's done correctly. I said, my problem here is that when, when you... When you put out this blanket policy of unaccompanied minors get to stay and unaccompanied minors essentially get to get a pathway to citizenship, you're encouraging unaccompanied minors to come across the border. You're encouraging parents to find ways to get unaccompanied minors across the border. And that's not a process that you just go to the local travel agency and arrange, right? You end up inevitably having to work with criminal entities, especially on the border, cartels. And, and it's not like you're going to send your unaccompanied, you're going to pay a lot of money to send your, your, your kid over. And it's not like they're going to then go into an elementary school somewhere in the United States and make macaroni art and, and play with Play-Doh. Right? They're going to get trafficked. There is a reason why we have seen a massive increase in human trafficking within the United States. And we're going to get into some of the numbers on that a little bit later. Let's go ahead and look at the next, uh, next uh, thing here. I think it's one. Oh yeah, there we go. This also shows, and this is this is all the way back in 2021, right? So we're we're noticing a pattern that's starting, and it goes encounters with encounters with migrants from some countries dras- rose dramatically in 2021. Now again, there's this impression that the people coming over the southern border are predominantly from Mexico, and that's that's certainly true, but we saw a massive increase. And if you look at this in 2021. I mean, you, you look at the trends from Ecuador, 95,692, Brazil, 56,735, Nicaragua, Nicaragua 49,841, Venezuela, 47,752, Haiti, 45,532, Cuba, 38,139. You look at all of these numbers, they're, they're pretty flat overall, and then they just absolutely spike in 2021. I mean, just huge. Let's go ahead and scroll down a little bit. I want to look at the next chart here. All right, these are migrant encounters increased across demographic groups in fiscal 2021, but single adults continue to account for the large majority. The reason why this is important is because a big part of the narrative on this is what about the women and children, right? What about the women and children? What about the families? So here's what we saw. We did see a massive increase in family units, right? So we saw um, a jump to 451,000 family units, um, single adults over a, a million and then unaccompanied children, 144,834 from, this is from 2020 to 2021, massive, massive increase in unaccompanied children. All right, let's go to our next slide or excuse me, our next uh, article. This also does a, this is a chart right here talking about, this is actually from Customs and Border Patrol. And, and here's what we're seeing. 2020, you had uh, just under 500 K with single adults. Then you jump up to, uh, uh, excuse me. Yeah. You, you jump up in 2021 at like almost, almost triples 2022 massive increase. And then 2023, if you look at where we're at right now, we're, we're not quite halfway through 2023 and we're already well past last year's halfway point. So we're going to see another record year. And presumably if title 42 completely goes away, that goes up exponentially. But, but the other, the other big concern here is the unaccompanied minors unaccompanied minors. These are people under the age of 18 crossing the border or people claiming to be under the age of 18 crossing the border. All right. So across the board, we're seeing massive increase. All right, let's go to the next one. And we're just laying all the groundwork here for what's actually going on. Because if anybody is doubting whether or not we have a significant issue at the border, let's hope we've we've proven uh, that, that it is. 
Here's the part that I think is, is the most concerning uh, on just a moral level. And this comes from the, uh, the Committee on Oversight and Accountability from the U.S. House. Um, I, I want to look at what is going on with respect to Department of Homeland Security and some of their responsibilities. They have essentially lost contact with 85,000 migrant children in the past two years. 85,000 minors that came into the United States unaccompanied. The United States government now has no idea where they're at and has completely lost contact with them. Scroll down a little bit on this. This goes into, here we go. Two-thirds of all UAC that leave, um, unaccompanied minors that leave, uh, HHS's care work, uh, or excuse me, care work, illegal full-time jobs, often in factories and hazardous conditions. Caseworkers with an ORR claim that HHS regularly ignored obvious signs of labor exploitation, such as single sponsors sponsoring multiple unaccompanied minors. Hotspots in the country where many UAC sponsors are not the children's parents. UAC with significant debts and direct reports of trafficking. We have heard stories I've been to the border seven or eight times and heard stories directly from people who are federal agents and others who have said it is very routine that a person was put with an older person and then they found out that was not even their family. During the hearing, OOR director admitted that only, that only slightly more than a third of unaccompanied minors end up with a parent. So if you want to understand why we have such a human trafficking problem, I, I would chalk it up to a couple of things. One, we have a very open and porous border. Two, we have, a we have an administration that actually believes that in some way, shape, or form they benefit from it. And three, we created an incentive for unaccompanied minors to come to the United States, which is incredibly dangerous. And then we, we had this, when, when we talked about separating at the border, separating families at the border, how could you possibly do that? How could you possibly separate families at the border? And the question was never asked, AOC, how do you actually know those are the parents? So you have two adults with a child, you just assume that it's one adult, two adults with a child, that that's, that's obviously their parents, right? Well, maybe they claim it, we don't know that. They violated the law coming over with the child, how do you know that they're their parents? It, it may be a reasonable assumption in certain categories. In other categories, this may be a child that's being trafficked. They have had cases of the same child crossing the border multiple times with different adults. So this is what happens when you, you might have nice, flowery, good intentions, and we're going to get to some of this, but this is what happens when you don't, again, we don't legislate intentions. You write laws. You have to execute those laws. And now we're in a situation where we've created perverse intentions and it is hurting people across the board, many of them unaccompanied minors. So that's laying the groundwork for, for what's going on. There, there is absolutely no question. So now what we want to do, and we're going to kind of go around the table on this, is we're going to go into, okay, what are the best and worst arguments for this? Because I, what I would hope is that nobody thinks what is currently going on is a good idea. There's like half measures, half baked response to all of this where the right doesn't get what they want, the left doesn't get what they want, presumably. So what actually is the solution? And I've had a hard time with this because I always hear my colleagues on the other side of the aisle because we've debated immigration in Virginia with respect to things like sanctuary cities. And, and I hear it over and over and over again. The left saying, well, nobody wants, we're not advocating for open borders. What are you advocating for then? Like specifically, because we've said, People here illegally should be able to get driver's license because it's a safety issue. They're driving anyways. They might as well have a license. 
we, we've, we've, you know, we're clearly not policing the border to the degree that it needs to be policed to actually prevent illegal immigration. So what, what is it that you want and why and what's your end state? That's the thing that I would, I would like to understand. So I'm going to give my best shot at the, at the best argument I can make from the left. This is going to get clipped up and say, this is what Nick Freud is playing. Let me guess. It involves racism. No. No, it doesn't. Here we go. I'm stunned. Okay, so then that's not the best argument. Then. It's not the best. Here's, here's, the, here's the best argument from the left for their border position. This is not my border position. This is my understanding of the left's position. <clears throat> I think a someone on the left would argue that if you look at the United States as a whole, we obviously are built largely off of an immigrant population. And not just from Europe, but from all over the world. And any one of us can go to any sector of the United States, any economic sector of the United States, and we can see a diverse workforce of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, contributing to the United States. And if we pride ourselves as a country that is built on philosophy and not race, well, then immigration is something that we should see as a net positive. And, and of course, we want it to be done safely, but we also want people to come to the United States and be a part of the American experiment. And so we have to look at this both from the, the practical benefits that immigrants provide to the United States as well as the humanitarian crisis that many of them are fleeing. After all, if you were a parent of young children in a country that was war-torn, that was being ravaged by cartels, that was hopelessly corrupt, that provided no future benefit of prosperity or safety for your children, and you look over to the United States, and you see all of that opportunity that's there, are you honestly telling me that you as a parent wouldn't make that same decision? And shouldn't we, as a country that believes that we're, we're inviting of people and believes that we're humanitarian, shouldn't we take on the best attributes of the Statue of Liberty and say that we want to provide you a safe harbor and asylum so that you can be free and so that you can also be a part of the American experiment? Wouldn't we want to increase that I mean, that is what I would do. Here's the actual left-wing response <laughs> from Rick Simon. No, you want a crisis. You know the thing, the way that things are going. Neither inflation nor gas prices will be an issue in 2024, <laughs> which means the fascists won't win. Yeah. I, I think he means that we're the fascists. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly what Rick means. Rick means that we're the fascists. So, um, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing Rick has no defining, idea. What defining is. feature of fascism obviously was um. Uh, you know, wanting to uh, prevent mass flooding of, of, you know, foreign migrants into a country. Last, last <laughs> I checked, authoritarian regimes usually set up walls with the machine guns pointing inwards. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do think that, that the left's well, response... Well, let's get, I mean, despite, despite, you know, the typical leftist response where if you disagree with me, you're a fascist, which, by the way, that's the worst version of their argument. Yeah, the worst, yeah, worst, so, of the verse, the worst version of their argument is to say everything I just did and then say, and if you don't agree with me, you're a racist or you're a fascist. I mean, they're, they're synonymous in terms of, of just yeah. throwing around insults. But I think that the slightly more, like, positive take on that... Mm -hmm is something that I've actually seen a lot of big L libertarians make before. Yeah. And I'd, I'd love to throw you the question to see like what your response to be to that would be. 
the, the, the traditional like big L libertarian take would say, well, the non-aggression principle says that, you know, it would be it would be a violation of of, you know, the, the, the NIP if I physically prevented you from moving somewhere that you wanted to move. And so what gives you the moral the moral authority to to prevent the free migration of people across an imaginary line drawn on a piece of paper, mm-hmm. which they would call a border? Yeah. Um, and 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 how you know how how does that not you know contribute to oh this is more big government that that's usually like the big L libertarian take yeah. the small L libertarian take would be the whole idea that you can't have open borders in a welfare system well and that so and I wanted to throw that to you like like what would be well, your response well, to that well let's let's look at real quick let's because so what we have is kind of the best argument from a libertarian perspective best argument from the left perspective and and both of them kind of rely on this underlying moral premise that I think most Americans feel on some level which is to say that we believe in freedom of movement of people. And obviously we want to be sympathetic to people that are fleeing horrible situations or are refugees or things like that. And so why, why shouldn't we have greater access for immigration or why should we have border controls in the, in the first place when it comes to immigration? And here's, here's what I would, here's what I'd say to both of them. And this kind of goes into the argument from the right. I, I can share all the sympathies that you talked about, but like everything else we discuss from a practical perspective on policy, this is a question about trade-offs. I mean, nothing sounds better than for people to say, I can't believe you could look into the eyes of a child trying to come to the United States and tell them that they can't come here. Well, okay, that's what the mayor of Chicago and New York and, and you know Philadelphia and D.C. and Martha's Vineyard all said until all of a sudden thousands upon thousands of immigrants were getting bussed into their sanctuary cities. Then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, we can't handle this. Whoa, 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 whoa. You, you, wait, so you mean declaring yourself a sanctuary city didn't automatically produce the resources necessary to be able to help? You're, oh, you're, you're saying there's, there's a cost to your altruism that used to be borne by other people, but now that it's borne by you, it's a problem. And, and that's the issue that I, I would say that the good conservative argument is made, and that is we, we, can, we can share all of your feelings of that, that immigration could be a net positive for a country. We can share all of your, your sympathies and want to genuinely assist people in a refugee situation while at the same time understanding that if you have a mass migration of people into your country, that that's going to potentially cause some real problems for the resources that you have available. And, and that's, that's not an unreasonable claim, but when the response back to that is, oh, well, this isn't about money, this is about people. Well, it's amazing how quickly it became about money and security the moment it was no longer a problem for just Texas and all of a sudden became a problem for Chicago, Philly, New York, and D.C. All of a sudden then money and security were real, real problems, real issues. Well, the, here, newsflash. Those were always issues. Well, you look at all of these border towns and they don't have the infrastructure that these huge cities do. And, you know, they don't, they simply don't have the same resources and yet they're expected to shoulder the brunt of all of this. Well, it's El Paso is one of the cities that are busing people to Chicago and El Paso is, spoiler alert, not a conservative bastion. <laughs> yeah, it's a deep blue city. It's a uh, Beto O'Rourke was the congressman for El Paso to yeah. give you an idea about their politics. So it's, I mean, but then again, Chicago itself is even more to the left of El Paso, and it's. I find it so fascinating that the mayor, well, former mayor of Chicago, um, her her reaction to it, I think, really illustrates. 
to some degree, I mean, dare I call it hypocrisy, mm-hmm. because for so long, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but but for so long, it felt like that you had Democrat voters in places like Chicago, San Francisco, New York, Martha's Vineyard, yeah. that would repeatedly vote for open border policies. Yeah with the expectation that they would not shoulder any of the actual burdens of said open border policies, but they would get to reap all the benefits of patting themselves on the back and feeling morally, you know, superior for doing so, right? Look at how much of a great humanitarian I am. I'm voting for open borders. You're the evil, mean racists, the fascists yeah. that, that that want to secure the borders, but also you're the ones that are having to shoulder the burden of the policies that I'm pushing for and patting myself on the back for. And now that's no longer the case, right? Because you have cities like El Paso, you have governors like in Texas and Florida that are shipping these people to these cities. And the response from these cities is, whoa, we we can't take this. You need to stop this. I feel like a lot of things, you know, city versus rural are that way anyway, by nature. I mean, they're People in the city want to pass all these crazy laws that are going to end up impacting people in rural areas where we're all like, hey, our environment's great. We take good care of it. You guys are the ones sucking everything (laughs) up, you know, and ruining it all. And um, so they it's like this weird nearsightedness where they they can't see past the borders of their city. Well, I, I think there's and again, I don't think everybody on the left has this particular position, but I think a lot of people see the left as a coalition of a variety of different groups. Um, and, and a lot of them, they, they perceive to be a coalition of minority groups. And I think they see the sort of immigration that's happening on the southern border as potentially politically beneficial to them, both for their calling for additional government uh, power and, and resource redistribution, as well as potential voters. And, and the thing is, is that I don't, when I look at that, I, I don't see that. I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any reason why somebody coming to the United States from Ecuador would, would in and of themselves be naturally more inclined to vote Democrat one day or, or, or be supportive of Democrat policies, except for if, if you're coming over, you're destitute. And the first interaction you have with the United States is somebody saying, oh, here, here's all these things that we're, we're going to give you. Yeah. Here's as your a result phone. Of here's your money. Here. Yeah. And, and well, and that's, that really goes into what Christian was saying before is that the whole idea of if you wanted more immigration, let's say you wanted that. If you wanted more immigration, what you would, what you would actually have to do is you, you would have to look at what sort of government policies provide perverse incentives that, that actually make immigration more, more problematic versus policies that would make immigration potentially beneficial. So we've had several people comment on here that, well, when you have declining birth rates, but you still have jobs to be done, immigration becomes a way that you make up for the declining birth rate within your country. And we see this all over Europe. We see this all over Europe, right? And the United States has been one of the few countries in the West that has actually maintained steady, but even now we're starting to decline again. So the question becomes, how are you supposed to maintain things like social security if you don't have enough people paying into the system versus the people getting out and the people that are currently on the system are not producing enough children to sustain it long term. Like that that's a real question. But back to Christian's point. If you have an elaborate welfare state and you're not counting all the additional expenditures and resources that have to be used whether it be through public education or through hospitals because uh, uh, newsflash you, you can show up and put your kids in public school and you can be here illegally, put your kids in public school and the public school is obligated to educate them, 
right? You, you can walk right into an emergency room and they're obligated to provide services regardless of your status or your ability to pay. Now we can all say, well, what's the alternative? You just kick them out. No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, is that you have to account for that in your overall analysis. I'm not saying kick them out of the emergency room. I'm not saying kick them out of schools, but I am saying if you allow more to come over and you're not increasing the same tax base that is necessary in order to sustain these features, you, that, that equals a net loss and you, you have to factor that in. Well, this isn't about money. This is about people. Uh, don't you love that what am response? I yeah. What, am, what are you supposed to do well, with that's, that? That's All right. If it's, if it's not about money, if it's not about money, why don't you allow them to stay at your house that's and why exactly don't you feed them say. and why don't you educate them and why don't, because, and the moment you say, well, I can't do that. This isn't about money. It's about people. I, I like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain the practical realities. Like if you really care about people, then you will care about the logistics you will care about the presence or lack thereof of necessary resources to give people the basic things, what they need to survive. But if you just want to ignore that because you think you're altruistic, you're not altruistic. You're an idiot. Money. If, if you substitute the word money for logistics, right? That line of thought, this isn't about money. This is about people would never work in any other field for anything related to government at any other point in history. Um, th think about this for an, um, for, um, for a minute again, replace money with logistics yeah. and replace people with, I don't know, uh, the soldiers under your command. Yeah. Imagine a general going into battle saying, this isn't about the men that I command, or th th this isn't about the logistics. This is about the men that I command. Yeah. Well, if you have no supply lines, the men under your command are going to starve to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before they even face the enemy. Like, again, and I'm just using that as one example. Again, you could apply that to, to anything that, that relates to government. I love the people that go out there and say, this isn't about money, this is about people. If you don't think, if you don't even consider the financial implications or the logistical implications, the people that you proclaim that you care about are going to suffer tremendously. Mm -hmm. well, we're but already seeing that. When 85,000 unaccompanied minors end up in illegal labor operations or the sex trade, I don't know that your altruism is doing a whole lot for them right now. No, no, no. It does a whole lot because, see, you get to put it on a yard sign that you stick in front of your house yeah. and you say hate has no home here and you write it in, like, eight different languages. And so, so th that sign, like, automatically just gives you more moral worth than your neighbor who has uh, a Trump sign in his yard. Yeah. Um. I, I, I mean, it's either that or, again, just resort to calling your your – your political opponents fascists, yeah. right? Last time, by the way, last time I checked, fascist states don't like to keep their borders static. Fascist states <laughs> would be going out there saying, yeah, this is why we need to invade Mexico. <laughs> so I, but again, like this is, this is one of these political issues that's just so charged with emotion and so yeah. lacking with like facts mm -hmm. or, or any sort of like, you know, reasonable analysis of the situation. It's just immediately appealed to emotion. Yeah. And, and, it's that's part of the reason that you can't solve the problem because quite frankly, I don't think people are interested in solving the problem so much as they are exploiting the problem in order to manipulate people's emotional feelings around that problem in order to get votes. Well, I, and and it, I, I think it applies all around. Mm -hmm. How many times did Donald Trump say, we're going to build the wall? The wall never got built. The wall never got built. I'm sorry, but it didn't. They, they got a few miles done. And this was when Republicans had 
they had a majority in the Senate. They had a majority in the House. The wall was never built. Yeah. And and quite frankly, even if they had a super majority, I don't think it would be built because Republicans benefit as much from the broken problem as Democrats do. We know how Democrats benefit from the broken problem, right? They campaign on immigration reform. They never deliver on it in order to gin up their base in order to do it again. And then they also believe if they get half measures, they can then co-opt these new people that they try to push amnesty for, get them on government welfare, get them committed to the Democratic Party's base, and then they have a new generation of voters. Republicans, for the longest time, you had the populist wing of the party that wanted to use the problem also to generate votes, but you also had the establishment wing of the party that pushed it for, I, I think in some ways, a simply utilitarian view to, well, we have a demographic problem, we have a birth rate problem, these people will well, fill jobs. I, I can tell you right now, when they talk about things like H-1 visas, when they talk about things that are, are um, for, for people to be able to come over and work, a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of American companies and it's not just in agriculture, right? It's also in the tech sector. We'll, we'll basically say, look, we, we cannot fill these positions with the American workforce. We, we can't do it. And so we, we need these visas. Now, the, the counter argument to that is, no, you just want them because it's cheaper labor. Well, the, the, the question that really has to be answered there is, okay, well, what will the price of the end product be? If it's U.S. labor versus foreign labor, even if that foreign labor is working within the United States, what will the price be? And will American consumers accept the increase in the price? Maybe they would. Maybe they would. I don't know. But here, here's what I do know. I, I do know that it, it's not that Americans won't do those jobs as much as the United States government pays a lot of Americans to not do any job. That's the reality. That's the reality. I, I, I can, you know, and, and again, Milton Friedman talked about this when he was talking about the welfare system over in the UK. And he was talking about a guy that had been out of work for like two years and he was on public assistance for that entire time and taking more. And he said, he goes, I'm not, he basically said, he goes, I'm not criticizing this man. He's actually making an economic decision that makes sense because his alternative is to go out and get a job that would require him to maybe do something he didn't really like to do and it would pay him maybe slightly more than what he's getting in benefits for a whole lot more work. Why would you do that? Why, why, would, a, why would a rational human being, and we're all programmed essentially to want to be able to get the most benefit for the least amount of labor? And there, there's two ways you can look at that. You can look at that as being lazy or you can look at that as being efficient. The way we usually distinguish those things is it's efficient if you're still taking care of yourself, right? And it's problematic if someone else has to take care of you. Because now what you're doing is you're saying someone else has to work harder in order to make up for the work that you are not doing because they're paying to, to sustain you. Now, as soon as you say something like that, the left immediately comes in, oh, I can't believe you would want to make people with this, but stop all of that. Stop all of that. We had this whole argument in 94 where it was like, we are distinguishing between able-bodied adults who are not working versus people that have some sort of debilitating disease, issue, whatever it is. We can, we can all make those distinctions and be intellectually honest and consistent about it. It reminds me of the um, quote from Bastiat where he says that everybody wants to live at the expense of the state, but they forget that the state lives at the expense of everyone else. Yeah. And... From your own personal standpoint, 
who everybody has that that incentive to to not work and live off of the the fruits of, of again the state yeah. but the problem is is that you 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 can't have a system where everybody's collecting a check from the government because th- where does the government get its money from in the first place we've talked right. about this previously in the podcast that there's only three ways that the well okay there's technically four ways but we live in the 21st century and unless you're russia you don't resort to to number four. Number four is you invade somebody else and pillage their stuff. Yeah. But um, the 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 three other ways outside of that are, are is you know you tax it, you borrow it, and you print it. All three of those involve taking wealth yeah. from other people. Yeah. There's Techni- no, there's no way technically, uh, number four is the most direct way to to still steal wealth from other people. But but there there is no scenario in which you can create unlimited free money to hand out to people without first taking it from somebody else. Usually, from the person you're actually handing the free money to, even well, if they don't realize. But it. but here, here's what I say. Like and again, because we're looking at all this through the lens of the border. Mm-hmm. So when when I have when I'm debating with someone on the left, um, or or maybe when I'm debating with an open borders libertarian. Right, because there's a lot about libertarian philosophy that I really appreciate. But when I'm debating about that, I I, again, I I usually consistently hear a moral argument for the shared humanity of all people, and I agree with that. I am sympathetic to that argument. What I don't like is that the moment we bring up the practical considerations of the the reality that the United States has a massive welfare state. All right, so so how are you going to account for that? Their argument then is, oh, that's just your that's just your dog whistle for you don't like, you know, certain types of people that don't look like you. What? what okay, if that's if that's going to be the hill you die on, if you're going to be like Rick Simon over here, like, oh, you disagree that you're a fascist, or or as someone that has actually been on foreign missionary trips, as someone that's been overseas and, and tried to protect people that looked nothing like me, didn't speak the same language, worshipped a different god, like all of that. And I, and I still saw that little girl in that tribe as someone that I was there to protect. If you're willing to tell me that, no, no, the only explanation is this, I'm going to look back at you and be like, okay, this is, you want to know why we can't actually have a good conversation? Maybe it has something to do with that. Now, by the same token, I've heard other people argue that I don't want any immigration whatsoever, ever. Nothing. Close it all off. I'm sorry. I don't agree with that either. Now I can tell you why not. I can tell you what I think because I do think I do think there's value. I mean, the bottom line, let's let's face it, the United States wouldn't have been a country had it not been for immigration. True, but a lot of these people that are arguing for a more closed border. No, no, no. I didn't say a more closed border. I, I've talked to people that they want an absolutely closed border, zero immigration. None. They want to shut everything zero. down immigration wise. Well, okay. And I and I've seen to, some people argue allow- that for culture, and I've seen some people argue that and they were racist and they were open about it. And and some people argue it from what I would certainly concede as a flawed economic view because immigrate immigration is usually you can twist it. We've seen it, but immigration usually carries positive economic benefits, not all I'm I'm going to stress yeah, not yeah. always. Yeah. There's totally examples we're living through one where it does not entail positive benefits economically but i it's it's worth mentioning that that for the vast majority of american history immigrants to the united states usually shared american values and that's why they came here mm-hmm. right so, so for the longest time america was importing people that 
in their heart and soul, they wanted to be Americans. That's why they came here. They did not come here because they 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 wanted to be handed free money by the government. Because usually, when we have the these the wave of you know like Irish and German immigrants and Italian immigrants, we didn't have a massive welfare system yeah. at the time when we had millions of these people from Southern and Western Europe that were coming here. But in the last fifty years or so, we've replaced importing people that share American values with importing people that share socialist values. We're, we're now importing socialists. This is the argument that I'm hearing. Yeah. I'm not necessarily saying that I agree 100% yeah, with yeah, this. Yeah, you're saying this, this is, is an argument. This is yeah. the argument that I hear from a lot of people that want a much more closed border policy is yeah. that we've replaced importing people who share American values with importing people that share socialist values. Yeah. That is going to eventually lead to disaster. It's not just about changing the, the racial demographic of the United States. It's it's about changing the cultural demographic of the United States and, and the political implications that that carries. Well, here, here's so here's what I'll say with that. I, I mean, any anybody that makes an argument that I don't want immigration because of racial issues, I'm going to tell you right now, I completely and utterly oppose and disagree with you, period. I just do. Um, I, I, I am a we are all made in the image of God sort of person. Now, I do understand. I do understand that it's like, look, our society is built upon certain precepts and rules. Right, a certain understanding of how society works. We value things like private property rights. We value things like free market economics, not to the extent I would like, but more so than most countries in the world. Um, there, there's, I mean, we use American values used to be associated with things like rugged individualism combined with a, a strong sense of community mindedness and freedom and acceptance of responsibility for one's actions. That those used to be core fundamentals. Now, if you're coming from a culture or a country that has very different views on those things, well, then coming to the United States, you're coming for one of two reasons. You're either coming because you like the values in the United States and, and those are the values that you have and you want to live in a country that shares those values, in which case you're going to find certain immigrants that are some of the most patriotic people you will ever meet in your life. I mean, you, you can, go, you can go to, a, <laughs> go to a, a citizenship ceremony where you are watching people with tears going down their eyes as they finally get to call themselves an American citizen for the first time. And when I see that, like I'm moved by it. I think that's, that's just awesome because that's someone that has said, I see something in the United States that is so special and I want to be a part of it. And I want to, I not only want to be a part of it and benefit for it. I want to fight for it and sustain it. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. I, I think that's one of the best things that, that you can get out of a good immigration policy. Now, by the same token, you have other people that are now looking at the United States. And this goes back to Christian's point that see it as, I see wealth, I see abundance, and I want some of it. Okay, that, that, is, the sort of, that is the sort of motivation that might not be as patriotic. It's a little more mercenary. <laughs> right, but you can still understand it. The question is, is how do you intend to get it? See, there was a lot of people that came over to the United States in the 19th century. They didn't necessarily, they weren't enamored with Thomas Jefferson. What they are enamored with is, you mean I can work my own land and the king doesn't take it? I'm you, not a serf. You mean, you mean I can grow my own crops and, and, the, and, and the local lord doesn't get to confiscate half of it and then sleep with my wife? Also, that sounds like a good deal. Right. And, and so but <laughs> there, there, there was also the added benefit, like like my fan. The reason I have the last name Heinz, my family came over here from Prussia in the 1850s. Um, there was a lot going for those that have, have read up their European history. There was a lot going on in Germany in the uh, 
first half of the 19th century that prompted a lot of people to want to hightail out of there, mostly because it was like every five years there was some war breaking out. And and so there was also the the added benefit of of if you move to the United States, if you move to the middle of of Iowa and Kansas, where my family had had settled when they came here, first they moved to Illinois, um, you were very unlikely to find yourself in a war zone. I mean, if you were living in in Germany in the Napoleonic era, or, or even in the 1860s when when Bismarck came along and fought three wars of unification, it was like every other week you were being drafted by somebody and shipped off to go fight in a battlefield. So, like, there was also the added benefit of of coming to the United States meant peace, yeah, and and the ability to buy your own land, start your own farm and not be harassed by the government or have your property be burned down by an invading army. But I think the problem is kind of in a twist of irony that now at the southern border, you you get from a lot of people that, that live in southern Texas or southern New Mexico or southern Arizona that argue that, well, the conditions there are almost like a war zone. So, so the, the reason that I brought that story up with the whole warfare thing is because you see this all the time with these these communities in the Rio Grande Valley that are like, it's like a war zone here. There's there's just violence and chaos and businesses are closing up shop and moving and, and people are vacating and there is no law and order, basically. And I think that law and order message is probably the most important one that conservatives need to run with when it comes to the border situation, because people on the right have varying different degrees. Republicans in general and people on the right in general have been very divided on the border for a very long time. There's been arguments, as you pointed out, on one hand, on one extreme, completely close it. On another extreme, just full-blown open border, have no border patrol, no border whatsoever. And, And Republicans have been very divided on this issue for a very long time, but I think the one thing that that most people should be on the same agreement with is, regardless of your position on immigration, people living on American soil should not feel like that there is complete anarchy yeah. in their community simply because their proximity to an international border. It's not fair to the people in Zapata County, Texas, that they feel like that there, there's no state of law and order whatsoever and that they're living in a war zone. I, I think so. I think that's an excellent point because there's, there's two different issues we're talking about here. One is immigration. One is border security. And they're definitely connected, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And going down and talking to to mothers who many of them were second, third generation immigrants from um, Central uh, or from Mexico and, and Central America. They were the ones saying the loudest, like, we have to have better border security. It's not because, and they're looking at me going, we're not racist. <laughs> like, we, we go to Mexico to visit our family all the time. They come up here to visit us. Like, this, we're, this is not a race issue. This is a security issue when I can't let my dog out at night because it'll get shot, right? Or, or I, I worry about my kids, you know, playing outside at certain times of the day. You know, that that's you're you're telling me I'm not allowed to be secure so somebody in so so a liberal in Chicago can feel good about their sanctuary cities policy. Uh, we got a question here I want to I want to ask answer real quick or or a discussion real quick from uh, Banda 848 question. What about limiting immigration so that those that have come can assimilate? I think that's an interesting question and I, I will say it's a it's a common conservative argument that it's like okay, I'm fine with I'm fine with immigration but but shouldn't we allow for greater assimilation? 
And, you know, it's interesting because that's what the whole process was was typically supposed to be about, was the idea that you become familiar with how the United States works, how it operates, um, you know, how our legal system works, uh, how our economic system works, you know, what the language is like. And so that way you're, you're set up for success within the country, right? That, that was the idea behind it. And I think there's merit to that idea. I think practically how, how you execute it um, is is it's difficult to do that when you have such an open and porous border, right? Cause you have people just flooding, requesting asylum, essentially kind of gaming the system in some cases, not to say that there aren't legitimate asylum seekers, but let's face it. If you want to come to the United States, you're going to say you you're claiming asylum because you can't just show up to the border and be like, I want in, right? You gotta, you gotta have a reason. And the asylum provides that reason. So I, I think that one of the things that we've talked about, um, I think it's Australia, uh, Australia basically has what, what you might call a point or a merit system where it, it essentially looks at the people that want to come to Australia and then what are what are the needs within Australia and what are the potential benefits that you bring. Uh, one, one thing that's really funny is that if you ever want to read something, maybe we should actually look it up, is the immigration policy of Mexico. Um, uh, let me just say right now, Mexico makes it far harder to immigrate into Mexico than the United States makes it to immigrate into the United States. It's not surprising. Consider c- consider the fact that Mexico's economy is more in the developing stage than the United States. Yeah. Not that Mexico is a developing country. It's not. But it's it's certainly more in the developing category than the U.S. is. Yeah. Right? So. It's, it's like it's of, probably the twentieth wealthiest nation. Yeah, it's. I, I, I'm yeah. not saying it's like Somalia, right? Yeah. There, there's parts of Mexico that are very, very wealthy, right? Mexico City, it does not look like it's developing. But consider the fact, though, that the Mexican economy is still in this transitional period in certain parts of the country. It makes sense then that the Mex- the Mexican government is is more interested in bringing in technically skilled laborers or skilled workers than just bringing bodies into the country because they want people to move into Mexico that are going to contribute to the growth of the Mexican economy. Yeah. And it, they, they do, Mexico does not want asylum seekers. Mexico wants skilled workers. Yeah. And part of the problem that Mexico has is that there's a lot of asylum seekers that are simply using Mexico as a pass-through in yeah. order to get to the United States. So they have their own problem on their hands. They don't want those people to stay there. They're, Mexico's more than happy to dump them into the United States mm-hmm. because they only want to keep the skilled workers. Yeah. Um, but I do want to point out, though, that Australia is an island. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. no, It's, it's a lot it, yeah. easier for them to manage their immigrate. Nobody's going to be hopping on a boat and traveling hundreds of miles. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot harder than just crossing. Yeah, there's no no question. No question, right? I'm not, I'm not drawing a, a perfect comparison here. But let, let's look at another question we got. Um, uh, let me see. We had a couple here. I'm trying to keep up. All right. So Amber asks, uh, would closing the border for a short time and coming up with updated policies be a bad thing? I mean, it depends on what you mean by closing the border, like closing all the, like, so when we, obviously now when we talk about the border, we're almost always talking about the Southern border, right? We're never really talking about the border with, with Canada, even though obviously illegal immigration takes uh, place there as well. Um, usually when we talk about the border, we're, we're talking about kind of like immigration. So if you said, should we close down all immigration in order to figure this out? I would say no. If you're saying, should we close down the Southern border? Um, I, more and more, I'm getting to the point, especially, and, and I feel this way even more strongly now with all of the, the human trafficking and, and, and learning 85,000 unaccompanied minors or minors that, that Homeland Security has lost contact with. I mean, yeah, you're getting to the point where the humanitarian crisis is, is gotten so significant that you, you have to do something. Um, 
And and so, you know, I don't know, but completely closing down, I don't know. But the, the thing is, is that it's easy to say, should we completely close it down? The question is, is what resources would be necessary to do that? And, you know, there was a lot of people that said, well, a wall, a, a, you know, a wall isn't going to solve the problem. People can go over it. They can go under it. They, yeah, of course they can. But the difference is, is that when you, when you do have a wall, when you do have some sort of physical barrier, it allows you to use your other resources more strategically. Uh, not to mention the fact that obviously we, we have a, you know, as, as a result of the drug trade, we have incredibly powerful criminal organizations in the form of drug cartels on the border that, that are working both in Mexico and the United States that are able to use money and threats to influence local elections that are able to intimidate local law enforcement. Think about being a sheriff's deputy on the border making $38,000 a year and being told you can, you can look the other way or we can kill you. We can look the other way and we'll give you this money or we can kill your family. And, and you knowing, you knowing that the military isn't coming to back you up, right? The, the, the feds aren't coming to back you up in any sort of meaningful way that's going to protect you and your family. You've either got to live in that environment or you've got to move. I mean, that's, I mean, look, as, as much as we all want to say cowboy up, if you're in that position, that's a difficult one to make. I mean, yeah, they may be able to say, take that bribe and shove it. But when it's take that bribe and shove it, and then they'll kill your family. That puts you in a whole different mindset now, doesn't it? Not to mention that, like, how, how, how helpless do you have to feel as a member of United States law enforcement at the border, knowing that you have the most powerful country in the world, the biggest budget, the most powerful military in the world, and here you're getting pushed around by drug cartels because the federal government refuses to come in and take any sort of legitimate measures to be able to push back about what's going on there. Here comes the question that some people on the right are not going to like, but it needs to be asked. At what point does it become clear? And, and I, I, I'm, I'm not saying this with the expectation that you're going to agree with me, by the way. Um, at, at what point does it become the war on drugs was a failure and maybe we should stop fighting it? I mean, I, look, I, I think, and, and again, the libertarian argument would be that the problem that we have with the war on drugs, and, and, and this is the part that you, listen, can I just say right now, I've never used I've never used narcotics. Like obviously I've had prescription medicine, but I've never so much as smoked a joint. Never. Um, so I'm not, I, I, I'm in no way defending drug use, even though I, I do believe obviously there's some, there's medicinal qualities to, to various things and whatnot. And I'm, and I'm not certainly not striking that, um, you know, the, the libertarian argument with respect to drugs in general is if you're using it, it's just affecting you. Why is it any of the government's business? Not to mention the fact that there's a lot of time, money, resources spent combating the drug trade. So let me just say this right now. I'm not going to get into the moral argument with, with any of this right now. And I'm certainly not, you know, the, the whole purpose of this episode is not to, you know, fight the drug war. Sure. But, but the, the question does have to be like, okay, if you are going to fight it, then you understand that you're creating a black market and the black market is what gives these cartels power. Now, a lot of people argue that, okay, well, there'll always be a black market for some sort of drugs. Plus the cartels will also organize in such a way to get involved in the legal market as well. Okay. Fair enough. Here's what I'm talking about. That's we can, we can look at the root causes and we can do a cost benefit analysis on what do we do? Is it better to fight the war on drugs or is it, is it better to create a, a legitimate marketplace for it? Argument for a different day. In the meantime, <laughs> if you are going to fight the war on drugs and you are going to have incredibly powerful and wealthy cartels operating because the U.S. is a huge consumer base for drug products, 
well, then you're going to have to equip the people that are actually dealing with that and not just in, in direct um, fighting the drug war, but in dealing with things like immigration, where now the drug war is spilling over into other issues that aren't necessarily specifically connected to it. You better provide them with the resources to be able to combat it. If you're not going to do that, well, then don't tell me that you're serious. So, I, I, I mean, I think that's, that's the problem there. So the one question was from, from Happy Cappy, why not send the Army and push them back? So Texas actually pulled up the Texas National Guard and went to certain portions of the border that were, weren't really protected and started putting up wire and stuff like that in, in, in order to prevent it. There, there's something called the um, – there's, there's two things here that factor into why don't, why don't we just use the military. One is the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878. This was the whole idea that restricts the United States military from engaging in, like, civil law enforcement responsibilities. That is supposed to be exclusively the duty of law enforcement agencies, not the military. Now, obviously, we've had times during crisis where the National Guard has been called up and sometimes even active duty military to be able to deal with, with riots or what we call insurrection style activity. Right. We saw this for the L.A. riots. We saw this for, you know, a lot of things. The question is, is that does does what's happening at the southern border fall into that realm where the military needs to be used? Well, I, I would say this. I think you could certainly make an argument for uh, using the U.S. military in a very, very limited role on the southern border. And I say this as someone that is adamant, adamant civil libertarian, where it's like, I do not want the military doing things that is not the proper roles and responsibilities of the military. However, when, when you have millions of people crossing over your southern border, even if it's not some part of some organized you know, invasion attempt, it's just millions of people that you know, some want a better life, some are engaging in the drug trade, some have other reasons, whatever it is, we, we can't identify all the individual motivations of people. And you don't have the law enforcement resources necessary in order to, to act on it. I, I think the same, sort of, the same sort of rules that you would use to bring in National Guard for um, a, a massive riot could be used for what's going on at the southern border. The problem is, is that every time states have tried to step up and do this, the federal government has come in and said, you're not allowed to. Oh, because yeah. border Even, and immigration like the containers which governor was it that brought in the containers yeah. and stacked them too high all along this section of the border where they were having issues yeah and they basically said like the federal government basically said you're in violation yeah you're, you're basically you're so this the, it what it really comes down to is jurisdictional issues so it, it comes down to an issue of which entity within our federalist system is responsible for this. Well, right now, the answer to that question is federal law enforcement is responsible for immigration and border security, right? So not federal military and not state law enforcement and not state military. That doesn't mean state can't assist, but states are supposed to assist at the request of the federal government. Now, let me say something here real quick that will probably get me in trouble with some people, but you please bear with me. I've had people before say that Local law enforcement, local and state law enforcement should be required to enforce federal immigration law. Let me tell you why that is a bad idea, right? It's not that I don't believe that they should assist with the enforcement of federal immigration law, but if you make it a requirement, either through federal law or even through state law, you are now running the risk of having local law enforcement prioritize federal priorities over local priorities. Now, you might like that if you're dealing with a massive you know, issue. You are not going to like it when all of a sudden the federal government decides, you know what, if it works for immigration, it also works for gun control. Unintended consequences. Yeah, so just everyone keep in mind, it, it, it's very easy to go for these simple solutions at times. We have federalism for a purpose. We elect sheriffs 
for a purpose. So just keep in mind, do, do I think that law enforcement should, should cooperate with uh, federal law enforcement on immigration law? Absolutely. Do I think it should be their priority uh, to, to the degree where they're no longer allowed to use their own judgment with respect to how they're going to allocate resources? Absolutely not. Not only for this problem, but for a lot of other ones. Not to mention the fact that my father was LAPD for 20 years. And one of the things he brought up, he's like, Nick, look, he goes, I, I, he goes, I want... I want local law enforcement to be able to cooperate with federal immigration authorities, um, certainly when, when it makes sense. However, you also got to understand that if I'm working a beat in a particular city or a particular area of the city that has a high immigration population, high immigrant population, or high illegal immigrant population, he goes, if that 12-year-old girl who is, who is technically here illegally, if she gets raped, she can't be afraid to talk to me because she's going to get deported or her parents are going to get deported. She has to be able to come and talk to me. And so it's important that we, we be able to maintain the judgment at a local level to determine what, what is going to get reported to immigration, and what does not, or what we have to hand over to immigration and what we do not. I have a we, we have, we have to be able to have that ability to use our discretion. And I think that is a good argument. I think that has to be taken into consideration. Okay. So my question is though, is what is wrong? Okay. It's one thing about, enforcing immigration law and things like that. Okay. What is wrong with an individual state securing their Southern border? Well, that's going to be well, right now. It's because constitutionally it lists that the federal government is responsible for the borders of the borders and immigration policy of the United States. So it's a jurisdictional issue within the constitution. Now you can make an argument. So Does that mean that the, the state's not allowed or does that just mean that the burden of responsibility is on the federal? It, the way that, there's certain court cases that came down that actually told states they were not allowed to engage in some of the activities that they were engaging in because it overlapped with federal jurisdiction. It was like a decade ago, there was a case involving Arizona where yeah. Arizona had tried basically to take matters into its own hands to secure its own border. And the Supreme Court um, basically said, Arizona is not a sovereign state. The federal government is. Arizona has no business with its southern border, it's purely the responsibility of the federal government. I, I, I get the argument there, but the response from Arizona was, yeah, and the federal government has completely abdicated that responsibility. And if they're not going to protect an international border that we also share, yeah. then we're going to protect that border. And and again, the Supreme Court was what it was at the time. Uh, th this was back when, when Kennedy was still on the court. Um, I tend to wonder, you know, if if a state goes ahead and does that, there there's all kinds of soft nullification we know about, right? Well, I, here's so, I, I want to I want to get into that later in the episode is, specifically. I want to get to that point specifically on what you're going to what you're saying about states. But go, I mean, go ahead. I'm just no, I'm good. I lost that point. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I didn't. I Sometimes didn't mean, when I get interrupted, I completely lose the thought. I didn't, oh, that's okay. she I'm just grilled you, Nick. No, I didn't. I didn't mean to do that. It's just that we we've got it. We've got it in our notes to actually talk about what can be done about this. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is what you're mentioning was yeah. with nullification. Well, can we just well, do that right now? But the question is really, honestly, if a state decides to secure its own border, then is the federal government going to come and inflict its enforcement on the state more so than it does on the border? And that that highlights a really big problem where they're willing to come and deal with the state, but they're not going to deal with the border. I, I think I, I honestly think that is an excellent point. And I think it's one that as we look toward the future, states are going to push that point more. But there's there's two approaches states can actually take. 
And we're going we're gonna to get to that at the end when we talk about what can we actually do about that. There's, there's two approaches that the states can take to push back against the feds not doing their job. And that's going to be one of them that we talk about. I got there's technically question. three. Okay, I got oh. another question here from Chris. I got another question here from Chris Fragley I want to get to. He goes, why not set up a system that would allow those who crossed illegally with no criminal record otherwise that would allow them to be issued work visas but not citizenship? Okay, Chris, this is a good question. And this goes back to the whole idea of what about the good person, maybe with a family that's just trying to take care of themselves, and oh, by the way, they're doing work. We need work done anyways. First of all, when you say no criminal record, how do we know that? Right, they may have no criminal record with the United States. That doesn't mean they don't have a criminal record in Nicaragua. Yeah, some of these people come in with no records at all and yeah. say that they are a minor and they're really not. Yeah, so, th so there's there's really no way to know. The second thing that you've actually done is you're encouraging people to break the law. So if if you're saying, hey, you can if you cross illegally but you don't have a criminal record, well then we'll let you stay and get a work visa. <laughs> well, okay, so you've done two things there. One, you've told people why would you go through the legal process. Why would you go through the legal process if you can come here and get the work visa? Skip the line. Um, so you've told everybody waiting in line and trying to trying to actually respect the, the laws of the country. You're an idiot because you could have just skipped the line, come right in. And as long as you have a criminal record, we would have hooked you right up with the work visa. And, and we know politically over time what would eventually happen is the, the first people that would get citizenship are not the people waiting in line. It would be the people already in the country working. So you you... The only, if you do that, you, you, and this is the, this is the thing we talk about all the time on this show. We, we can't just, uh, we can't just look at these policies from the way that we hope people will react to them. We have to look at the natural incentives that would be created through the policy. And the natural incentive here is don't wait in line, just jump the border. And as long as you have a criminal record, or as long as we can't prove you have a criminal record, you'll get a work visa. And then over time, politically, it will be far easier to make you a citizen than to kick you out than it is to keep people waiting in line. It's a classic example of a perverse incentive. We saw this last year when um, the Biden administration tried to forgive student loan debt, and it was something very similar, right, where you, you have now told people, oh, load up on debt, go get any degree in the federal government, the taxpayer will, will pay for it. Well, now you've, you've basically told people, oh, don't pay off your student loans, don't be fiscally responsible you'll get bailed out by the taxpayer. Yeah. We do the same thing on a larger scale with, with Wall Street and with the banking sector. We just saw that a month ago, right? Where where the, the federal government stepped in and, and bailed out these depositors with Silicon Valley Bank. There's there's it, it, The reason I bring this up is, you know, what does this have to do with border security? Well, in some ways, everything. Yeah. Because it's an example of how the federal government's actions to try to solve what they have identified as a crisis has actually in some ways created a bigger crisis than the original problem that they tried to solve because they've now incentivized perverse behavior. They, 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 they've created a moral hazard where the government is basically sending signals to people or in some cases organizations or in other cases businesses that, hey, engage in very risky behavior and we will pick up the tab if the house of cards comes falling down. Well, the same thing is in play with the border, right? As you said, if the response is, oh, well, we've got, what is it now? Like 15 million people in the United States that are here illegally. Well, we're going to give them all citizenship or we're going to give them all some sort of, of legal status, residency status where, you know, we, we've completely, completely removed the threat of deportation. At that point, you have now incentivized every single person in the entire world that wants to come to the United States for whatever reason to do so. 
Yeah. Right. And and you've disincentivized people to try to come to the United States legally to try to get a green card or to try to get a work visa or or to, 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 to try to come to the United States and then go through the traditional citizenship path, because the quicker way to do it would be just hop over the border in either direction too. You could you could fly into Canada and just walk across the border into the United yeah. States. You've now created incentive for, for people to do that. And so. That is usually the response that I see Republicans give or conservatives in general give on that issue. But again, the response from the left is, well, you're a racist. Yeah. So. Well, you're a racist. You're like, we just had another question on this. Like, freedom isn't free. We're all immigrants. Whatever happened to your huddle? Okay. Here's what I will say. The vast majority of, of immigration that came into this country um, early on in our country's history came before a welfare state. Welfare state didn't become a massive elaborate thing in the United States until the 1960s. So when people talk about, we've always been a nation of immigrants, you're absolutely right. But prior to, prior to the great society and this massive takeover of federal um, welfare policy, it, it's not that everyone was dying on the streets, right? There's always this, this notion that before the federal government took over subsidizing you know, housing and daycare and food and clothing and everything else, that everyone was just dying and poor and miserable. No, we, we, we've had a great deal of we've had a great deal of, of economic wealth in this country for some time and there was always organizations that actually stood up to help people that were truly destitute it was called the church it was called civic organizations it was called a lot of times it was um, you had private organizations that would help people that were immigrating from certain places you had Italian American associations you had Irish American associations and and that not just from those two places all over the world where People that had already come over here and immigrated to the United States and knew a little something about the process, you know, and, and a lot of times were helping friends and family come over, came up with organize, organizations and associations that would help them get on their feet, get them landed with a job. And then what, what you ended up happening was you, you had these strong communities that weren't, that were not the government controlling them. Now, can, can you find bad versions of that as well, where people were a manipulator, they were exploited? Yes. But you, you don't get to tell me that the government hasn't also been guilty of manipulating and exploiting people. So the, the question is, is what was the better way to do it and actually to build communities? Was, was, it to, was it to allow for people within the private sector through charity, through altruism, through civic organization, through agreements to be able to help people that were immigrating to the United States, help sponsor them and get them set up? Was, was that better? Or was it better for the, the border chaos that we see right now and then massive government welfare programs that are, are horribly unaccountable. I mean, come on. Let, let's just. I mean, let's just be honest here. Okay, here we go. Uh, let me let me, let me get a question from Rumble in here from our oh, Rumble okay. audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gate X Rat asks: Can Congress pass a law to circumvent a derelict exec branch to allow the states to call up uh, call up the guard and perform U.S. LEO duties? So, could Congress... This is this is a good question. Oh, could I'm, Congress delegate its authority just like it did on wars, basically? Well, no, no, it's, it's not delegating its authority because the Congress is not responsible for enforcing the law. Congress is merely responsible for writing the law. Okay. The executive branch is responsible for enforcement. The question would be, is that how would you write it in such a way that would permit states to take action while not violating provisions of the Constitution? And then secondly... How would you get it through an executive that you know is going to veto it? So can, can con could Congress theoretically write a bill that would allow states greater authority to enforce their own borders in a way that wouldn't violate the Constitution? I think they could. I think they could. You would need a president that was willing to sign it. Could that also backfire, though? Yeah. Could that also backfire with states like California 
would they just go? No, because you wouldn't be you wouldn't be removing federal jurisdiction. What you would be saying is it, you would have to come up with some sort of cooperative agreement. So, like, they could help increase the security, but they can't take away from the security. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you could do something like that. Um, the, but the other the other problem would have to be it would be jurisdictional. The the issue that you would run up with that is the federal government is always going to have jurisdiction at the border unless you change the constitution. There's probably not going to be any desire to change the, the, that in the constitution. Secondly, you you would have to come up with some sort of coordinating function, and the problem that you would always run into is that even if legally you provided the states some capacity for dealing with this more than what they have right now, it would always have to be subordinate to the feds. And if you had a president that didn't want them to do it, they could always hijack. They could always cause problems for it. So, so that would be the problem. That's why, again, later on the, here in about 30 minutes, we're going to go into what can, what can states do or what should they do going forward? Or what do we think they're going to do going forward to deal with this? Because with the current federal government we have, there's there's no incentive to do it. I, you know, this goes, I really wish, this is slightly askew of the topic, but it, it plays in. Um, I really wish that there was a scenario, instead of us paying our taxes to the federal government, I feel like it should all go through the state and then the state pays the federal government. And the reason I think that that used to be the case. Yeah. The, the reason I think that should be the case still is because then the state can use those funds to go, wait a minute, you're not upholding your bit. And we're just going to go ahead and withhold these funds until you oh, and, uh, until you see our scenario or you see that, our problem. The 16th and 17th Amendments were the two Worst. most destructive. Worst. Uh, changes to our governments they destroyed federalism right now like texas and arizona and california they they send all this money to the feds to take care of their border and then they basically get we, we could, we here's could a question whole... for you nick how often have you heard i'm not gonna ask you to name names yeah but how often have you heard the excuse of we can't do that in, in richmond while you're there yeah have you heard the excuse of we can't do this nick yeah. because if we do you know what I'm about to say we'll next. Lose federal funding. Yes. yes. How oh, often have you heard that excuse? The time. And so if it all worked the, the other way around, yeah. the the states would have so much more power within the federal well, system. Th this, this is why when Christian says that the 16th and 17th amendments were an absolute travesty, he's not he's not wrong. He's not wrong. You you can pin almost so much of the stuff that we're dealing with today that is a huge problem with fiscal policy, with monetary policy, can all date back to the 16th, 17th Amendment and the Progressive Era and the Federal Reserve Act and everything else. That's a whole other episode. I got another question here. Outside of voting for a candidate that will prioritize border security, is there a path for getting feds to enforce border security? No. I, I, I don't see one. I don't see one. Then this is why the state should go ahead and do it and dare the federal government to come down to their border and deal with them. Tina really wants to jump to the end of this. <laughs> no, I, I don't I don't think there is because that's that's the way the government works. The federal government is responsible or, or the uh, responsible for the border, responsible for enforcing immigration policy. You have to have a president, an executive that is willing to organize the executive branch in such a way to do that. I will say one of the most important things Trump was trying to do was um, to reverse some of the decisions. So we, we have this process within federal employees to where the, the president gets to appoint all of these cabinet heads and secretaries and, and things like that. However, a lot of your middle management within bureaucratic agencies are protected year over year. They, they, it's like they can't be fired just because a new administration comes in. And one of the reasons why they put that in place in the 1800s was to prevent what they called the spoils system 
where you had cases where a new administration would come in and one of the ways they were rewarded all their supporters is they gave them all government jobs, right? And it still happens to some degree. Just look at some of these ambassadorships. But anyways, I mean, is, uh, but, is it just me or does it kind of seem like if we continued to have the spoil system that we would see a little bit more clearly the difference between the administrations? You, you, I you, mean, you, you probably you the deep state would be I, I actually OK, this is going to sound controversial, but I am not willing so far to like come out and say outright that I state. support it. But no, 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 no. I, I was about to say you could absolutely make the argument that we should return to the spoil system. Yeah. And the reason why this does relate to immigration and yeah. border security, for example, the reason why is because if somebody like Trump was in the White House, either back in 2016 or hypothetically again after 2024, he could go in there on day one and fire 90% of these people at all different levels of, of, of you know, all these different agencies and, and, and groups at the federal level and replace them with people that are ideologically aligned with him. Yeah. And instead, what we saw when he got in in 2016, by the way, somebody brought this up when I mentioned earlier that like, oh, the wall wasn't built under Trump. And then they were like, that's not Trump's fault. That's a fair point. I, I wasn't suggesting that it was his fault, yeah. but I, I was saying that, that we, we did not see that be delivered when we had a Republican White House and Senate and, 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 House. and House of Representatives. Um, but, but, but backing up just a second, if Trump, if we had a spoil system, Trump could have gotten an office and he could have fired anybody that he wanted to at the federal level. Like it was back in, yeah. you know, the 1860s, 70s and 80s. And then, there wouldn't have been a deep state. There, 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 there wouldn't yeah. have been people working in the federal government who were also working to undermine. I mean, again, to, to go back to the border thing, part of the reason we didn't have so many things that Trump campaigned on, even though we had a Republican Congress, was because not just, oh, there were people in Congress that wouldn't vote for it. There were people working within the federal government that that actively obstructed actively obstructed him and then there were people working working within the federal government that actively worked to seek his defeat in 2020 and quite frankly if we didn't have the i would argue that the reason that we have a deep state is because we have a situation in place where it doesn't matter presidents come and go right but yeah. the bureaucracy is forever the bureaucracy it, it, gets to sit and wait out this term this administration and that, and do everything they can to slow roll or mess up what's going on in the administration. That, that, that's true. Devil's advocate. All right, let's just look at the other side of this. I think anybody that is remotely responsible for either developing or carrying out major policy positions should be able to be fired by, by the president for, for whatever reason uh, or, or for reasons associated with not carrying out that policy, incompetence, et cetera. However, th there would be, a, a, again, let's, let's look at this practically. If you suddenly have the ability to hand out millions upon millions of government jobs every four years, that would potentially be pretty disruptive to things in a way that- Don't threaten me with a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, I understand that you're there's- You're giving, hang on, Nick, you're giving me the ability for the federal government to be more dysfunctional, <laughs> less effective- and let's be honest, it's not like the existing bureaucracy has a conservative bias to begin with. Uh, We've got look, nothing to lose. Look, look, look. Seriously. I, I, again, I'm all I'm saying is, is that if you're gonna if you're gonna advocate for a spoils system, understand that, that it works both ways. 
right? It works both ways and it doesn't necessarily always produce the best results, especially like, like again, should every postal worker in the United States be fired every four years, right? Like, I don't know that that's the best policy. That's it. All right, let's move, let's move on. I'm not thinking that it would. I mean, I, I, it probably wouldn't. I'm just, we are going way off the rails extreme. here. I am pulling us back. You're using the extreme. Right. It's question. Should it? Thank you. Question. Should not the FBI be in charge of the border since it's a federal laws they need to enforce? No. Uh, you can you can set up various uh, you know federal law enforcement agencies that are responsible for different things. I don't think we need to hand. That doesn't mean the FBI can't assist the border patrol in certain things, and they certainly do. Uh, same thing with, with other federal law enforcement agencies. But I, I think it makes sense to have a a federal agency specifically for focused on the border. That's just that's just me. Um, even though I want to cut so many federal agencies, I mean, doesn't even. Uh, all right, question. Does the FBI do background checks on asylum seekers anyways? Yeah, they should, and, and they probably do. But again, when, when you're talking about someone coming in from, from countries, that doesn't necessarily mean, like, like, for instance, when you had refugees coming in from Syria, the FBI wasn't calling up Assad's regime going, hey, can we get your police reports on this person? So in many cases, they don't exist. Yeah, they're, they're limited on what they can actually get access to. And obviously there's things like Interpol, which is, you know, the international police organizations and stuff like that. that. But, but when you're releasing them right back into the country and they just vanish, what are you supposed to do about that? At that point, yeah. if they're not showing back up for court dates and they're, I mean, okay, investigations uh, completed, you don't get asylum, but you are at large and you're here. And yeah. that's that. No, no, I, I, yeah, I get it. I'm just saying that this is why they, even though, even if they're investigating it, that doesn't mean the FBI has access to unlimited information all over the world. Okay, Mbot asks, Nick, why are you talking like this is an American problem? Every Western country is getting flooded. We get South Americans, Europe gets Middle East. How could you ignore the whole West? Okay, Mbot. <laughs> This podcast is about the southern border. <laughs> I don't know. I know what to tell you. I'm sorry I didn't. I'm sorry I'm not also looking at I, Poland's border right now. You know now. what, though? They were in the chat having a side quest, uh, <laughs> Christian and Bastiat together. I, I, I got into a huge to... fight with him about the political status of Poland and, and Ukraine. And people are coming right, in right, like, right. what? We're supposed to be uh, talking about the, the southern border. This is, this is why we can't have nice things. So, Imbot, it's a side quest. I'm, it's I'm a not, chat side I'm quest. I'm not ignoring what's going on in Europe. Or I'm not ignoring what's going on in other countries. We're just, we, we got a couple hours to talk about something. I can't talk about the whole world's immigration you know, crisis. It's I, I'm, I'm focused on the United States. That's I'm not ignoring it. All right, here we go. Let me see. Um, where's another question here before we move on to what do you think about the disease being brought in? So I, obviously, I mean, this is why we had title 42 in the first place was, and it's not just, I mean, COVID was COVID gave COVID gave a reason that everyone could kind of get behind um, on saying, Hey, yeah, we probably shouldn't just have people pouring over the borders because we have a highly communicable disease. That doesn't mean it's the only disease before, that's coming over. Before COVID people were talking about polio starting to become yeah. a thing again. And what's interesting is, uh, the left was blaming anti-vaxxers for polio coming back in. And it's like, well, wait a minute, where's the polio coming from? Because unvaccinated people shouldn't necessarily that, that are in our country where we've eradicated polio. Yeah shouldn't be the 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 ones you're focusing all your anger toward it should be the people who are bringing polio into the country what i found this is why so this is funny. why bandit 848 says queen of the bees 2024 <laughs> what, what what was so funny about the title 42 litigation was at the same time i mean you you want to talk about like political cynicism here yeah. you go at the same time that the Biden administration was trying to impose a vaccine mandate on the entire country that was eventually struck down by the supreme court they were also in court trying to strike down Title 42. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. By the way, for, for, for those that might not know what Title 42 is, Title yeah. 42 was this temporary measure that was put in place during COVID in order to restrict certain immigration to the United States because we were in the middle of a pandemic. Didn't we read so, through it at the beginning of the podcast? I, yeah, yes, we but we're an hour and 22 minutes in, okay. and so we might have had new people jump in. But the... Just think about that for a second, that like at the same time that the Biden administration was trying to use COVID to justify imposing a vaccine mandate on private employers and their employees and and threatening them with legal consequences from the federal government if they refused to to do this, they were also going to the courts and arguing COVID's not an issue anymore. We need to get rid of Title 42. This is an excuse in order to limit immigration into the United States. And then people wonder why, like, they, you know, the average American has just gotten completely blackpilled about American politics at this yeah. point. Because like, it just seems inherently contradictory and, and just nonsensical. And everyone has this sense that there's there's a hidden agenda they, they have nothing to do with and very little power to stop. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and the border is a really good example of that. Like, what can the average person do to solve this problem? Well, I mean— so so many people, and I'm willing to bet in our chat too, or, or those that are listening to us on audio when we publish this, the average person that's listening to this podcast, I can imagine this right now. Like, I back when I commuted to Fredericksburg every single day, I would listen to podcasts all the time, and they would be about history and politics. And I would listen to these things in my car, driving, and I would think to myself, what can I do about this problem? And oftentimes I would come to the conclusion there's not much. And I worked in politics. Well, I had the ability to- And this to, is why to, every five minutes, Christian's like, we're doomed. <laughs> well, here's what I'll say. There, there's a lot of problems that we discuss uh, on this channel where politics is not necessarily the, the, the best you know, mechanism for solving the problem. This is one, like border security. Um, this, is one, this is one of the reasons why governments are established. Yeah. They're like fighting you, wars. You can't homestead your way out of this problem. <laughs> yeah, Well, yeah. I mean, this one's like, I mean, this is a constitutional issue as well. Like the federal yeah. government's shirking its responsibility right now. Well, let, let me, life in a nutshell is a question. Given the projected statistics showing that the U.S. will face demographic collapse in the near future, just later than Europe, which will be catastrophic for the economy and livelihoods? I don't know if there's another question there, but um, one thing I will say is like U.S. Um, U.S. demographic and, and population it, statistics. It's the next the next uh, comment. They oh, what measure? Catch. Oh, what measure would you read? Uh, Oh, what measure would you recommend to counteract this? Oh, okay, thanks, thanks, Tim. Having um, more babies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. good news, guys. <laughs> no, no. I, so here's what's interesting: the, the question that you have to ask is why is it? Why is it that wealthier societies eventually lead? It, it, it's amazing because when societies are super poor, um, population can sometimes be an issue because of disease or because of malnourishment or stuff like that. So you'll see high birth rates, but life expectancy is low. You see this in, in really like poor, war-torn countries and stuff like that. There's a lot of instability. Um, and, and then in like kind of super wealthy, affluent countries, you'll also see lower birth rates. In fact, even more so in many respects. And, and it's almost like society gets to a point where it all becomes, like it gets so focused on kind of like this hedonistic approach. Pleasure. Yeah, this hedonistic approach where it's all about, I'm going to live my best life. Right? And and kids get in the way of that. Or maybe I'll have kids and I'll have one or two as kind of like my designer child when I, you know. And, and look, I'm, I'm not I'm not trashing anybody that, that, that has done that or whatnot. I'm just saying that there, there seems to be this trend within affluent nations where um, 
there, there's a lot more emphasis on living life exclusively for yourself. And that has downward pressure on things like having kids. Now, what's interesting in the United States is that we're, we're seeing this confluence of two things happen at the same time. You see the same thing in Europe. It's, it's a, a, high degree, a high degree of relative security with respect to like peace, a high degree of easy to come by you know, pleasure and things like that combined with a sense of kind of hopelessness that you're never going to, you're, you're never going to be able to get to a point where you can own your own home, raise your family and do all that, or that's become increasingly difficult or find somebody that you would want to marry to, to be able to do those things. But you have a never ending stream of cheap distractions. And so it becomes really, really easy to just go after these really, really cheap chintzy dopamine hits as opposed to working for the things that are far more difficult and hard to build, but are far more gratifying in the long run. And so it's bread and circuses. There's also, there, there, there's no meaning and purpose in European society because yeah. atheism and secularism has completely taken over the, the entire, I mean, it, w people complain about it here in the United States. The problem is, is 50,000 times worse in Europe. Uh, it, like it's, it's a majority of the Dutch public identifies as irreligious or atheist or or some form of secular. Yeah. Now, that's not entirely fair because a huge chunk of that are people that I guess in the US you would call spiritual but not religious and yeah. they, they don't really know what they believe. But the, the point, even within that category, there is still no meaning or purpose because if somebody identifies as spiritual but not religious, they might say, oh yeah, there might be some meaning or purpose, but I don't know what it is and it's unknowable and it, there's no way to figure it out. Um, in societies like that, you saw this in the Soviet Union where it was a state atheist yeah. society. In societies like that where there is no higher goal to yeah. achieve to, um, people fall out of the workforce or fall out of society because ultimately... This is the one life you the, got and nothing happens after. Yeah. And May as well get yours and... And, well, and not only that, why? I mean, why would you bring kids into a world where it's all just drudgery, misery, and work, and then you die? It's all just atoms in the void. And, and I mean, you, you see that a lot. I mean, th think about with within the climate change movement. One of the most common arguments that you see with people that are really obsessed with climate change is, I don't want to bring children into this yeah. world that, that is suffering from this. Well... In some ways, you have the same thing. It's just not as blatantly said, but you have the same thing that exists within very secular societies. I don't mean secular in the sense that, like, we don't have a state religion, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. we're not living under, like, Sharia law or something yeah. like that. I mean I mean secular, like, Richard Dawkins in the, the Reddit atheist crowd have won yeah. and convinced a majority of the public that there is ultimately no meaning or purpose to be found in existence, Right. When that happens, people ultimately, they, they, they lose interest in higher purposes beyond simple gra instant gratification. Yeah. And that leads to a collapse in birth rates. And then you you, you get into the problem. Oh, well, then well, you solve that problem by just importing migrants. Well, eventually you will not be able to fix well, that. The, so the, the, que the question from those, what do we do about it? And, and I would say one of the biggest things that we have to, one of the biggest things we have to take into consideration is why did birth rates fall off? Like what, what has changed? And I think everything that you just mentioned was really important. People have to have a sense of not only meaning and purpose, but some degree of like transcendence, right? That there's, there's a, a history that there, there's your life that you're living, but there's also a legacy that you're leaving. And who are you leaving it to? 
Well, when you're leaving a legacy to your children, it not only motivates you to, you know, have children, but to also create a better environment that they're going to be able to build upon. And then when you also have a transcendent worldview, like, again, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I believe I'm going to see my kids again. I believe I'm going to see my parents again, right? Like, there, there's this idea that I'm working towards something that is bigger than myself um, and that there's purpose and meaning, eternal purpose and meaning to it. And so that, that provides a, a great deal of motivation. And by the way, I don't believe it because it conveniently provides me purpose and meaning. I believe it because I think it's true. And, and, and that creates, now there's, there's pot of positive benefits to that as well. So here's the other thing I would say. One of the biggest problems that we had within the 20th century in the United States is that, uh, and, and Theodore Dalrymple in his book, um, uh, Life at the Bottom, writes about this as well. We, we got into this idea that what the government's responsibility to do was to remove all the burdens of life. And those burdens were things like having to worry about clothing yourself, feeding yourself, housing yourself, educating yourself, healing yourself. And so we, the, the government was going to be responsible for these things. And what happens is, is that when you remove all of those responsibilities from people, it turns out they don't sit around in coffee shops writing poetry, right? Dostoevsky talked about this. He goes, if you gave people everything they wanted, the first thing they would do is burn it down so something interesting would happen. Now, I don't know if it's the, quite that bad, but I will say that Theodore Dalrymple talked a lot about this in, in like decades of work within the welfare system and the prison system as a psychiatrist. And he found that it was amazing that when you remove the responsibilities, what you're also actually removing is purpose and meaning. Because you, you actually find there's a nobility in not only taking care of yourself, but then expanding that and taking care of your family, taking care of your children. There's meaning and there's purpose in these roles. And if you just say, no, 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 you don't got to do any of that anymore. We'll do it for you. Well, first of all, you're not because somebody had to work harder in order to make that happen. And so what you actually breed is not a sense of community or purpose. You breed a sense of entitlement and depression. And the result is that you've got to step over people and fecal matter to get your kids to school. Yeah. So I, I would say to answer the question is that you really have to, for those of us that actually believe this and believe that there's purpose and meaning in these things, you have to make the decision to work within difficult environments to achieve it so that you can show that not only is the other, not only is the opposition a lie, but there is a truth and that truth actually works. And then that gets into the, what, what can you do? Again, some of it is, is great news. You can you know, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good father, be a good mother. You can work hard. You can build something. You can be creative. You can do all these things when everyone else is just wondering why their hedonistic lifestyles is providing them no meaning and giving the government more power. Um, okay, let's go. Okay, so immigration. We're going to get to the last part here where we're going to talk about kind of what is going to happen and what we think should happen. So, Queen of the Bees, Tina, I know you wanted to talk about this earlier and I got in trouble for interrupting you, but there was a reason. There was a reason. It's because I wanted to talk about the whole, I think states have kind of one of two major options here. I think they have three. Christian thinks they have three and I have, I have a feeling I know what the third one is. <laughs> the first one is, will states essentially tell the federal government, you know, go pound sand we're going to enforce our own border. And you're already starting to see, like, again, Texas deploying the National Guard and setting up, you know, wire and guard posts on the border. That's, I, I'm pretty sure that's something that's going to be challenged in court. But Texas is doing it anyways. You brought up the case, I think it was in Arizona, where they started, like, creating their own wall. And the Fed said, you cease and desist. And Arizona said, we're putting them out there. If you want, you can spend the time, money, and resources to remove them. Right. You don't have enough money to actually police the border, but let's see if you have enough money to remove yeah. us policing They're the border. They're more willing to police us than the border. Now, here's what I'll say. I actually think that on, on in some ways, um, they're going to have to do some of this. 
But I actually think the second option is better. And the second option is what they've been doing with respect to bussing um, people that have come, come into the country illegally Careful. to sanctuary cities. <laughs> I actually think them doing that, bussing people that came into the country illegally to sanctuary cities, I think is a better strategy overall because part of the problem here. Why can't it be both? Well, no, um, I think it will I be. I think we I think should continue be. to go ahead and bust the people on into all, you know, Martha's Vineyard and everywhere else. <laughs> um, I think, I think making it their problem um, will raise awareness. This is, this is just raising awareness. Yeah. That's all this is. And then. Look, this is about people, not money. money yeah. yeah. It's not about and, resources, And you Chicago. said you would be a sanctuary for these people, and we are just sending them to the sanctuary. We're partnering with you. We were told that hate has no home in Chicago. Yeah, so great, because yes. this is what we're going to do. And, and, the, and the reason why I think it's the most valuable is because if, if Texas picks up the responsibility for policing its own border, which it may have to do in certain areas and for certain reasons, it's still the people of Texas carrying an additional burden for something the federal government is failing to do. If they're actually taking these people and sending them to sanctuary cities, the people that are responsible for the federal policy that is hurting Texas, and they're making them feel the pain, they're far more likely to get them up there. They're far more likely to get people from New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, calling up the federal government going, you've got to do something. And what they really need is donors from both sides of the aisle calling up people saying, you better do something about this because this is not sustainable. But the one thing that we know about reality in general, go talk to any leftist that, or go talk to anybody that used to be a leftist, used to be a Marxist, that now is a hardcore conservative or libertarian, and you're almost always going to find the same story. At some point in their life, they were mugged by reality. And it, it wasn't a great argument that was made. It was, it, they were hardcore. And then all of a sudden... They had to live with the consequences of the sort of world they wanted to create. And they realized, holy crap, this doesn't work like I thought it would. I think that is a nice first step. <laughs> okay. The, the other thing I think is that I think these states should go ahead, secure their own borders, and, um, and go ahead and enforce their state laws exactly how they need to. And when the government says, oh, you're not going to get government funding anymore because of X, Y, and Z, because you did this, yeah. then I would just, you know, advocate for passing a law that says nobody in this state has to pay federal taxes <laughs> then, and then just tell your state law enforcement to arrest anyone that comes to try to extract taxes from your citizens. So Tina's going full nullification I mean, in her you, position. She basically advocated for option three that I said exists, Sus which, yeah. is, which is disunion. Yeah. I mean, it, it, here's the thing. We've talked about this in a previous episode, what, a couple weeks ago. J just wait, man. Just, just wait. The system will collapse eventually. <laughs> and, and, and by system, I mean the dollar system. And when that happens, the federal government's... The only thing the federal government has is a currency that they can wield in order to, to exert power and influence on states and individuals and other countries. When that currency system is gone, and it will be gone eventually, we did a whole episode on that. Yeah. When that currency system is gone, there will be a vacuum of power, and hopefully that vacuum will be filled by states coming in to, to fill the void and restore a constitutional system of government that, that conservatives have historically advocated for. The alternative is is either anarchy or some sort of, of disunion, which I, I wouldn't want either of those. Yeah. But states just need to 
What? States need to start preparing for the eventual outcome that will happen mathematically in a couple decades when the dollar eventually completely evaporates in value because the federal government is completely unwilling to balance its budget and will eventually have to debt monetize its way into filling that gap. And that will lead to the destruction of the dollar. When that happens, the federal government won't be able to, to, to wield the power of the purse over states because the dollars that they're giving the states will be worthless anyway. No, I, I think, look, I, I don't, I, I obviously I think inflation is a huge problem and I think it's so baked into our system right now and there's no real political will to, to correct it without a significant downturn. I, I'm not, I'm not saying absolute collapse or anything like that, but I think it, it, it would be so like depression size problems. Bastiat says, why don't you bust them back over the border awareness? They're really, uh, they're already aware. Here's what I, here's what I would respond to Bastiat on that one. And, and, you know, we usually agree with Bastiat, but, um, DeSantis said that uh, originally too. He's like, why are you, why are you busing people into the interior of the United States? Why are you putting them back across the border? Because the bottom line is if you take them right across the border, they just cross the border again. It's just, they get better at it each time. And so you don't catch them next time. And the, and the problem is, is that it still inevitably becomes primarily the problem of, of the border states. There, there is something to be said. Again, when have you ever heard Lori Lightfoot or, or at, where, where have you ever heard people like are that woke and progressive begging the federal government to do something about this? Never. It wasn't until they had to deal with a fraction of the problem. Not the lion's share, not the bulk of it, a fraction of the problem. And then all of a sudden, they're becoming advocates where like the federal government has got to do something. The resources are not available for this. This is overwhelming us. You're not going to get that if you just bust them right over the border and they just cross again. And then you just do this back and forth, back and forth, yeah, back and you, forth. You they're going to they're gonna get, feel the pain that they're putting others through. And now they gain a little bit of empathy for the border states that have been dealing with this for ages. Well, and they, and they realize that talk is cheap. It's really easy to sit there and be altruistic when somebody else is fitting the bill. And then what you realize is, and this Milton Friedman said this numerous times, he not only said that you can't have open borders and a massive welfare state, he also said there's no such thing as a free lunch, which means every time that you're trying to accommodate something like this, somebody is paying for it, right? Somebody is paying for it. And it was real easy to be altruistic with everybody else's time, money, effort, security. Now that it's theirs, they're realizing it's a genuine problem. And I don't think there is any other way. I, I don't think there is any other way that they were going to learn that this, this has real ramifications for people. And oh, by the way, the people that are suffering as a result of this policy are not bad, evil, mean, you know, the, the people that we're all allowed to hate nowadays. It was everybody living at the border. All right. Bandit says, Christian's been watching Rick and Morty. I made their <laughs> currency worth zero of itself. No, but the federal government will eventually make their currency worth zero of itself. What I was trying to get at there is that currently a lot of states, I asked Nick this question earlier, how often have you heard the question, we can't do that because we'll lose federal funding. The federal government currently can, can use the power of the purse to coerce states to do basically whatever it wants. I mean, it was in the 80s that the federal government forced states to raise the drinking age for threat of, you know, withholding federal highway funding. Fe the federal government coerced states to expand Medicaid using the power of, this, uh, of the purse. There's multiple examples throughout history, recent history of the federal government doing this. What happens when that dollar is no longer worth anything? 
suddenly the federal government can't coerce states to do things. Yeah. No, I, At that I get point, the point, Arizona, yeah. Arizona can, can, can go and build their own border wall. And when the Supreme Court says you can't do that, that's the responsibility of the federal government. Arizona's response is great. You and what army is going to enforce that ruling? Supreme right. Court doesn't have one. And the federal government can't pay their... Yeah. They, they can't pay their law enforcement to go tear down the border because there is no currency that's worth anything. So what exactly is going to prevent Arizona from doing what Arizona wants to do in what, terms of I, security? Especially the if they keep Arizona's money in Arizona. There is a question sitting here <laughs> yeah. from Sir of Potatoes because we've all kind of given our little take on this, but he's calling out Hamilton. Yes. He and he's saying he's kind of curious about Hamilton's take. What do you think should happen? Well, I think there we, we've talked about a lot of stuff today and I'm, I'm going to mirror some of the things that Nick has said in the past, but there's the Republican solution and the Democrat solution and I think Nick is absolutely correct when he talks about the welfare state and how, you know, we could put a wall at the border. We could do anything anyone's talking about, but we have set up an, a system which incentivizes people coming across the border and we give them, you know, free education, free health care. And why would people stop coming if they have those things guaranteed to them? And so I, I think that, you know, it's unrealistic that this would ever happen, but first thing like nick says that we need to address is the welfare state to solve some of these problems no i i think that's true because again when we when we look at what is this, okay if we can all agree that some immigration is good and some immigration is not what immigration is good immigration is good which actually helps strengthen the society that you're living in which is to say people are coming to the united states because they want to be americans they want to work hard they want to be a part of the american dream they want to be a part of the american process okay what immigration is bad People that come to the United States because they see an elaborate welfare system that they can actually get benefits from without contributing in direct proportions to actually sustain the welfare state that they're using. Well, and then so there's how do also you, not immigration at all where they're just bringing people over to traffic yeah. children. So so the, the point is, the point is, is that, okay, if we can all agree that there's a good form and that there's a bad form, the question is, how do you create incentives to help the good form? Right. And how do you create disincentives for the bad form? Well, again, if, if an elaborate welfare state and criminal activity and things like that are, are all positive incentives for bad immigration. Well, then you have to focus there. You can't just, the security is an aspect of that, right? The security is absolutely an aspect of that, but it's not the complete picture. If there is a demand for something, right, then, then people are going to find it. They're going right. to find ways around your security. So you, you need to minimize the sort of perverse incentives that you have and, you know, and, and go after the positive incentives for the things that you want yeah. to see more of. Nick, can you briefly go, like, this incentive structure idea isn't just specific to the immigration problem. It's, it's all over the federal government, all over government in general. Can you just take 30 seconds to talk about incentive structures across government? 30 seconds? Holy crap. Or 60 seconds across. Have you met me, dude? <laughs> I know, you don't, you don't answer he, things very He does very not quickly. say granted, 10 words when 20 granted, will do. since he started doing shorts on Instagram and YouTube shorts, he has gotten much better at, at right, sizing everything down. I'll try to, I'll try to be down. concise as possible. But I think this is just so important for understanding of conservative ideas in general. Okay. So it, everybody operates off of incentives. Everybody. Everything you do has some sort of incentive associated with it. The thing that you have to look whenever the government acts is what are the sort of incentive structures that are in place? One of the things that Thomas Sowell talked about is working for the government taught him a lot about how agencies have their own incentives, which go beyond why they were established in the first place. If you are an agency, for instance, that is designed to deal with poverty, you want a bigger budget because that's more money for you. That's more employees. That's more power. That's more influence within the federal environment. Okay. So you're going to look for ways to expand your objectives, your focus, your goals, your things like that in order to increase your importance within that system 
regardless of whether or not that additional spending is actually achieving the sort of objective that you want, because you can always find more problems with it. If you're not aware of that incentive structure, then you can fall prey to this idea that what is always needed is more money and more power. And, and one of the most important things you can do is, is instead of looking at how much money is spent, this is one of the ways that politicians, we spent this much money, we have this many programs, we've done this many things. The real question is, is with, with every single one of these agencies, especially ones dealing with things like poverty or housing or stuff like that, shouldn't the real goal to be that one day we would no longer need these agencies because they're no longer needed? Yeah. Okay, but does the agency have that goal? And if you're not willing to consider that incentive structure and, and how it affects their decision-making process, then you're not fully understanding the picture and you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're making decisions as a voter to make yourself feel better as opposed to really addressing the problem. And they have their own incentives to stay necessary. Yes, absolutely. That, that's, again... To, to, so it's some, a coping mechanism, really. A, a lot... Well, again, from the voting perspective, again, if, if you're working within the agency and, you're, and your livelihood is dependent upon the existence of the agency, you have a very, very powerful incentive to keep the agency large and in charge, right? Um, if, if your incentive structure is to actually cure homelessness or hunger or whatever it is, then, then that can be organized in such a way as to foster that sort of incentive structure. But the moment you make it an actual agency, in fact, the moment you take it out of the hands of charity, and you put it into like a government structure, the government structure will seek to perpetuate itself. The charity doesn't necessarily. I mean, it can, right? They, yeah. if you're, especially if the charity is making more money by being a charity than it is actually helping people. Right. So those are one of the things you want to look for. But that, that's part of the problem is that people say, oh, well, like every time you say, I, hey, I don't, think we, I don't think the federal government should have a department of education. Oh my gosh. Why are you anti-education? No, no, I got a better question. Why do you assume that a federal department of education is actually a net yeah. positive for education policy? Well, Why do you assume that? Can you give, give me evidence of it? Don't just assume it. And then, and then you have to look at, this is the most important book, one of the most important books on economics that was ever written. It was uh, Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. And the one lesson that he tried to get everyone to understand is the seen versus the unseen. The politician takes the money. The politician spends the money. The politician then points to whatever they spent money on and then says, look what we did. And this wouldn't have been here without it. And what Hazlitt was trying to get people to see is not only is it not necessarily true that the thing that you built was good, but what you really need to question is what would have been built if that money hadn't been coercively taken from somebody else and spent over here? What would people have spent their money on? And would they have done a better job on spending on the things that are important to them than having a third party come in, take the money, and then spend it on what was important to the third party. So we've talked about best arguments and worst arguments on the left and the same for the right. Help us understand the incentives that both sides have in this conversation. So Christian talked a little bit about this. Let's, let's talk about the worst possible incentives for both sides. And the worst possible incentives for both sides is they both politically benefit by having the problem. How so? So Republicans get to rally. Were you just not listening to me when I was talking, <laughs> Hamilton. Wait a second. So the Republican. So so let's let's talk about the worst incentive from the conserv from the Republicans. The Republicans say as long as there's a border crisis, we can get Republicans to show up and vote for us because we're going to deal with the border crisis. Right. Democrats can say as long as there's um, as long as there's a, a constant flow of immigration, it provides new people that we can basically be able to get on the system, and more people on the system generally equals more voters for us because there's a dependency factor. And they can also use it a bludgeon to talk about compassion, right? AOC, Staging photo ops. Yes, AOC can go to the border and, and dressed all in white and sit there and pretend like she's crying, 
right? So they have they have an argument for their voters. Like they're the caring, compassionate people, and Republicans have an argument for their voters. Now, I, I would say that overall, I think Republicans have a greater incentive politically to actually fix the problem than Democrats do because it is a um, Republican voters will will get tired and will vote for people that will actually are actually committed to fixing the problem. Democrats not necessarily because they're the way the incentive structure works is uh, illegal immigration continuing the degree it is on a southern border right now is is overall an, a net negative for anyone that believes that this actually has you know d- disastrous effects overall. But for Democrats, if you honestly believe that your whole coalition is essentially a coalition of what they consider to be marginalized groups against the majority, well, then they can operate off of the assumption that this is a net benefit for them as long as it continues until they can actually get the secure uh, power to such a degree to where they, they win the majority of elections. I think they're actually making a, a I think they're actually making a fatal flaw with respect to how a lot of people think about the United States when they come mm-hmm. in. I think there's some people that he can convince to just, you know, that, that everybody hates them except for Democrats and the Democrats are their allies. I think there's a lot of other people that, quite frankly, the, the culture that they're coming up with is incredibly strong work ethic and strongly comp, uh, strong family, uh, strong religious background. I mean, these are, in, in many cases, these are natural conservative voters. Yeah. In, in fact, I would go, so, like I, I joked once, like, you want to know what Nick's ideal immigration policy is? Here's Nick's ideal immigration policy. And I make it all voluntary. I'm not forcing anyone. I would like for every American that thinks that we are just a racist, misogynist, brutal, bigoted hellscape to trade places with somebody that desperately wants to get to the United States because they'd love to work and raise their family. I would love for that trade to take place. And, and I'll tell you what. We one can for even, one exchange. We, one for one exchange. <laughs> and we can make sure that all the people that truly hate this country and just think that we're horrible and that what we really need to do is try real socialism I invite them to trade places with somebody in a country that is currently attempting real socialism. And here's, here's what you will find. There are not enough Americans in the United States to trade places with everybody that would desperately like to come into a country that the left says is horrible and mean-spirited and bigoted. There's not enough people. In fact, let's, let's completely cut out Western Europe. No immigration from Western Europe. There are not enough Woke liberal progressives, I'm going to say liberal, woke leftist progressives that could or would be willing, or let's say even could exist, to trade places with all the people in poor and impoverished countries coming from places that are not Western European, they would actually trade places. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it because deep down they know their argument is garbage. Deep down, they know their argument is garbage. But would I take that trade? Like, if they were willing to go for that, would I take it in a heartbeat? Oh, my gosh, yes. Yes. Because I believe that the most important thing about the United States is not a race. It's not an ethnicity. The most important thing about the United States is a philosophy rooted in the idea that you have inherent worth as being created in the image of God, that God made us free, that you have a right to live your life the way that you want, provided you don't infringe on the rights of others, that you should work hard, take responsibility for your actions, relish the responsibility of working and taking care of yourself and your family, not fostering off on somebody else. Be strong, but also care about your community. That's what I want America to stand for. And anybody that believes that, then I want this to be a place of refuge for them. And anybody that believes that America is just a hopelessly lost, misogynist, bigoted, horrible, no good hellscape, great. Go trade places with one of those people. 
Maybe you'll like it better in the places that are practicing the sort of real socialism that you seem to enjoy. I find it funny that so many of the people that are coming to the United States right now are fleeing countries with universal health care and gun control. I thought those were the things that were destroying the United States. No, no, no. The lack of those things. That's what I mean. It, it's, this, it's this whole idea of, you know, and Tuttle Twins put out a meme the other day that I just absolutely loved and shared. And it was, um, it, in fact, let me just pull it up real quick because I don't, I don't want to get it wrong. Um, oh. I'll pull it, it up. You keep going. I got, I got it right here. Um, it says, I crossed 90 miles of shark-infested, hurricane-ridden ocean at night on a raft I made out of water bottles to escape free market capitalism, said no one ever. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Every time, every time there is, every time there is any sort of you know structure or limitation built between you know real socialism or or whatnot and free markets and freedom, and those walls come down, where do people go running? So look, that's my immigration policy. Just just to prove to some of the people on the left that might want to say I'm I'm a bigot or I'm a racist, and that's why no no no, I want there to be a policy that makes sense. I want there to be a policy that, that benefits the United States and the people that want to come to the United States that sets them up for success when they get here. And I would gladly, gladly trade as many white woke progressives as that would like to leave with people that look nothing like me coming from other countries that desperately want to get to the United States because they generally see it as a place of liberty and opportunity. So... They're welcome to take me up on that trade anytime they want. All right. Well, I think that pretty much closes us out. I think we got to everything that we were looking to. I want to thank everybody for sticking with us. We had a we had a pretty good viewer uh, viewer consistency all the way through. Thank you for all the questions too. It really makes the show go better. But anyways, thank you from our folks in Rumble as well. Yes, thank you for Rumble. Thank you for the people watching on YouTube. We really appreciate it. Also, if you want to uh, kind of see this later, listen to the car, you can always do that on YouTube. Also, we have our audio platforms as well, which yeah, are I was hitting, say, hitting record numbers right now. A huge thank you to our yeah. audio listeners that yeah. don't watch us live on YouTube, but instead download the podcast and probably listen to it when they're driving. Yeah, yeah. When they're when they're cooking at home, stuff like that. That that that's when I listen to podcasts. Is yeah. usually when I'm at home, like just doing chores and stuff like that, and. You hear that? Hear that, ladies? He cooks. <laughs> oh man, well, I've, I made some buffalo chicken mac that's in the refrigerator right now, and I'm a guy, so I just left it in the pot and just stuck it in the refrigerator. <laughs> but it is it, when we're done with this episode, I'm probably going to go eat some because it's so good. And this was made with Queen of the Bees honey. <laughs> it, right? it was actually made with the honey that that uh, Tina's bees made. Yeah. Tina All brought right. over some honey, and I. I, I, I've been using that honey and like I made pancakes with it and mm-hmm. all three of you guys yep. actually liked it. Great so, pancakes. Yeah. No, the honey stuff is fantastic. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. You're not allowed to do this, right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. You know, you know it's funny. Whenever, do the okay symbol. Whenever, whenever you have that, whenever I have that like honey, I'm like, oh, this is what my field tastes like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, listen, thank you all for uh, sticking with us. Appreciate all of your uh, comments and questions. And we look forward to seeing you again on Thursday. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.